0: Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely.
1: It's it's important to remember your relationship with the world is the reflection of your relationship with yourself. So if you can't be kind with yourself, very likely you can't be kind with the world. That's why I say that perfectionism is not just a hard burden for you. It's a hard burden for people in your life. Perfectionists are really hard to live with. And so very critical people, uh, you know, people who have an impossibly high bar, they're very hard to live with, not because they suffer. And, you know, if I love you, I I will suffer by looking at you suffer. But they actually impose that on people in their lives. So, for you to sort out your relationship with yourself, in a way, is a public service. <laughs> I think if people learned to be uh, to be at peace with themselves, it would be so easy for them to be at peace with the rest of the world.
0: Welcome to Self Helpful. I'm your guide, Kevin Miller, and I curate the sea of new personal development messages to bring the most influential leaders onto this show. Join me as I question my guests to better understand their counsel so we can all integrate the wisdom into our lives because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. The Self-Helpful Podcast is presented by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping coaches. Visit Ziggler.com. Hello, Self-Helpful listeners. In this episode, how to be authentically you and still respect others. I continue to be enamored with this tension of being self-aware, being true to yourself, while also being sensitive to others and respecting who and how they are as well. We tend to fall on the side of just being me and being raw and unfiltered, which is likely to get you ostracized. Or just performing for others and being untrue to yourself and in essence, being dishonest to those you care about. And I've fallen on the latter side most of my life and just people please to make everybody happy, which is exhausting and leads me to just retreating from everyone. And this doesn't help me or them. Well, my expert guest for this series on the topic is Christina Mand Lacchiani. You may know her as co-founder of Mind Valley, which is billed as the world's most powerful life transformation platform with an ever-growing 20 million strong following. I've got millions on social media as well as members. They boast the teaching and trainings of many of the personalities I've had here on this podcast. Christina is an entrepreneur, a writer, an international speaker, artist, and philanthropist. She grew up in the former Soviet Union and has a tremendous story of overcoming. Today, she's based in Estonia, and my muse is her new book, Becoming Flawsome, The Key to Living an Imperfectly Authentic Life. Like me, Christina has spent decades in the personal development industry, and in this episode, we candidly discuss the dark side of personal growth and how it can actually feed your insecurities, how it can leave you feeling you're never enough and tire you out with a feeling of constantly striving. Christina has a heart for people who, like her, realize they have become a missing person in their own life, not authentic. She cites that you won't find peace being even 95% honest and authentic. If you're still 5% fake or performing. So this is a message I really wanted to dig into for myself. And I believe you will resonate as well. Christina, as I, as we were just talking about, you know, reading your book, seeing what you've done with mind Valley and more, I see you as somebody who like me has been exposed to so much personal development, personal transformation is what you guys talk about. (laughs) So much information. You've seen the best of the best you've gleaned. And from that, you kind of have your own take on it now. And that's really where I'm interested because I feel like you're doing a 180 on some of the paradigms that we usually look at with personal development. I see you smiling and I think you did that so well in the book. So I'm excited to talk with you. Thanks for being here.
1: Kevin, thank you so much for having me and for having patience with with my technical issues on this side.
0: Yeah, well, really the tech, tech helps us do this, but it's always a little bit of a challenge. You know, it's a I, bit
1: of a nice breaker, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. It is. It kind of puts us on a on an equal playing field. I appreciate that. You know, looking at what you did, and I want to just briefly touch on your past or your history, not your history with Mind Valley. And looking at that, you know, I looked at it recently and it talks about a better you every day, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. step into your greatness and personal transformation. And I mean, that's the business I'm in and you've been in as well. And yet from your book, I see or I feel you saying, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, that's all great and good. And yet it can also lead us to feeling like we're just never enough today. We constantly mm-hmm. having to strive anymore. And I feel you kind of pulling us back to go, you know, you got to be okay with you now, uh, as mm-hmm. as awesome as your book talks about, and you got to be okay now. Is that really a, a primary spirit or foundation of the book?
1: Well, definitely, I guess, you know, I have been a perfectionist all my life and very ambitious, uh, little good girl. So uh, I kind of understand this constant struggle to be something else something better and uh, It's it's uh, you know, it's a little bit like this uh, dog who is chasing its tail. You will never reach it uh, And they say you know the path to hell is laid with uh, with good intentions And that's exactly what happens in our industry where uh, this obsession with being better yes. Very often leads to the opposite result to the accumulation of the darkness and the wounds Which we just don't have the capacity to deal with for example if you've been in person growth for many years And you know that, you know, love is the thing. (laughs) You are all about that. And then suddenly you feel something less than love towards someone. Usually what happens is that we don't know how to deal with that. So we push it away. We say it's not about me. That's not me. I don't want this energy. This, This is toxic. So rather than facing our own demons, our own dragons, we pretend that they don't exist. And you know, we humans we do live in illusion from delusion, illusion whoever how aware you are about it, but we all live live in an illusion. Now adding that aspect of not wanting to face certain size of you uh, well, only intensifies the delusion in which we live. Now, a very simple analogy, though, in no. case you don't like this <laughs> this kind of abstract talk, a very simple analogy would be uh, a navigation device. So I live in Europe. If I wanted to go to France, all I needed to do is to uh, set a point in my navigation device in my, in, in my car that I want to go to Paris. Right. But it will not start working until it figures out where I am. You can't lay a path that's to a destination correct. until you know the point A. And that's the problem with our industry, that very often we are so set on the destination that we're completely closing our eyes on point, point A.
0: That is significant. I love the analogy of the location device. It can't know where to go unless it knows where you are right now. Honestly, Christina, that's what I missed. I mean, that's part. That's why I appreciate your book because it resonates with me. Uh, I've been in this industry, you know, I've been a pro athlete and I've started businesses and had success there and thought I kind of knew what I was doing and knew what I was about. And then it wasn't until burnout and some bitterness that I realized I've got these things behind me. I'm so unaware of myself, especially emotionally that Mm -hmm. i am sabotaging myself and i but i'm just churning and burning and as you talked about i hadn't thought about this before christina i i think that i did it's easier to go after the next self-help you know book podcast whatever message instead of stopping and looking at myself first so again i'm right back to your analogy i love it that i didn't where's my starting point who am i what am i about before i look at where i'm going to go towards And then we find ourselves just striving and striving and striving. And I do find that it just uh, feels like people, they burn out or, I don't know, I feel like they give up too. At some point you just get tired. Oh my gosh, can I just be okay right now?
1: (laughs) You know, the thing is that uh, if we look behind the surface of this behavior, very often it is uh, the very uh, bizarre way of escaping your problems. There is such a concept as uh, as spiritual bypassing, and that's, uh, you know, Okay, let's not even go in that direction yet. Uh, workaholism, being super ambitious, constantly hustling and striving. Very often we do that to keep ourselves busy and to f- not to face the things which are truly, you know, sh- truly hurting us. So very often by obsessing with I could be better and by running after it, we refuse to deal with the things that we need to solve before we actually are able to become better.
0: That's interesting. And, you know, in your book, and I pulled it out, you said you talk about the dark side of personal growth and how it can feed our insecurities. And yet, it, I mean, not not the flip side, but what you're bringing us to is to, in a sense, embrace our insecurities, like get them out there. Of course, we are imperfect. We are flawed. So get them out there. And would you just say, I mean, have some grace for them. And of course, we do want to get, I do want to get better. I do want to improve, though. Even at the core of that, why? Maybe that's you know, a good question to ask, huh?
1: It's, uh, embracing your insecurities is uh, just the first step, in my opinion, okay. because what I'm trying to get at is that very often these very things that make us feel less than, that makes make us feel that we are ashamed or unworthy or, or weak, they hold the key to our true unique strength and value. And that's something that we're very often missing because the paradigm in which we grow up is that to become better, you have to work on, you know, on the things that you're not good at. Yeah. To to train that muscle rather than, and of course, maybe I shouldn't be talking to a professional athlete about that. But the thing is that very often we uh, put so much focus and attention on things which are not taking us where we need to go rather than just embracing what you are facing your dragons and saying, okay, this is what I am now. How can I, how can I turn this from being my curse into becoming my blessing? How I can turn this dragon from being my weakness, from being my, something that makes me feel less than worthy to actually support me on the way where I'm going.
0: Okay. I want you to unpack that a little bit because on one side, I hear you talking about, you know, this is an age old discussion about focusing on your strengths and not your weaknesses. If I look at that from a sports perspective, or an athletic pursuit. Um, You know, I did really well in ball sports to begin with, but I did not enjoy the team aspect of it in the locker room and whatever. And so I came over and found a good fit in cycling uh, in an, in an endurance sport, but I was best at sprinting. And If I could go back and rewrite time, I would have, made that my focus. That's where I was best. But the glory was, you know, the tour de France. I didn't make it to the tour, but it was the big stage races and the mountain passes. And so I lost a lot of weight so I could climb. It just wasn't natural for me though. That wasn't. And so I didn't focus on my strengths. I, I hurt, I hurt myself by not doing that. I tried to be something that I wasn't. So I hear you saying that on one hand, but then you're also saying it and, and let's get out of athletics, I guess, mm-hmm. that some of the weaknesses can be Can be great. Explain that, though. Give me an example.
1: So here, here again, you know, I I think we started the conversation also so much with a plunge into the depth, and maybe I, I should have given a little bit of context of how I see the world. So one thing that I truly strongly believe in is that there are no absolutes. And you cannot, um, like if I say something, it's very tempting to take it for an absolute, but you always have to consider the context. So when it comes to weaknesses, there is this uh, this line which some people don't see that it is there. The difference between your, um, let's say, your bad patterns, your behavior, like bad habits, behaviors right. that do not support you versus something which makes you truly you. So I can eradicate a certain habit which doesn't serve me uh, well. And uh, in my 45 years of life, I've had some bad habits that I've been able to give up and and I've, I've learned to, you know, create good habits. But that's that's on the level of your behavior and your patterns and, you know, how you how you interact with people, for example, how you interact with your body, how you do sports, exercise and so on and so on. Now, there are. The essential intrinsic qualities of you as you. Now, I'll take the one dragon, which is very easy and sexy, and we usually flaunt it, which is perfectionism. On one side, we all understand that perfectionism is a burden to carry for you and for your environment, but we also are not ashamed of that thing. And. Um, very often, if you go on a job interview, or let's say if you have someone on a job interview and you ask them what's your biggest weakness, and they will say, "Oh, I'm a perfectionist," because that's a sexy dragon to have yes. but but if we are absolutely f- fair, it is a massive burden, and usually perfectionists have really low tolerance for failure, which makes them rather you know rather cowardly uh-huh. And perfectionists also have very low tolerance for their own personal imperfections. So it makes them a little bit, um, it it makes them incapable. Like it's, for example, for a perfectionist, it's really hard to listen to criticism. Yeah. And to go into something where they can fail, which is a huge burden. Now, you know, uh, about 10 years ago, I heard this wonderful phrase, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I really loved it. I embraced it. I started calling myself recovering perfectionist until a few years later i realized that i cannot recover from being myself so there is a quality in me which makes me perfectionist it's it's just a part of me that i have to live with and i can't i can't change a certain part of me like if if i let's say if i have brown hair i can't become blonde no matter how much i i, I would like so this well i can dye my hair obviously <laughs> so this is this is a similar analogy this is A part of me, an intrinsic part of me. So the question is not how I slay this dragon, how I untrain myself from being perfectionist, but the question is, can I recognize this as intrinsic part of me and learn to live with that? So if we keep the analogy of dragon, can I learn to tame it and to ride this dragon? So I know that perfectionism can prevent me from going into competition, from challenging myself, from listening to criticism, which might be actually helpful. Uh, from uh, it, it really makes me hard not just on myself but on people around me. Yeah. So it's a massive burden. But I also know that perfectionism also gives me that that strife, that ambition, that desire, you know, attention to details. So it's not all bad. So can I just recognize that this is part of me and learn to live with that and not just live with that, but actually make it my strength? Yes. Now, after this easy story, I'll give you one which is less. Palatable. I'm also intrinsically very lazy, and I'm always in my head, and I'm an overthinker. Can I turn them into my strengths? That's the
0: question. I don't know. Can you?
1: Of course. Yes. <laughs> Laz- laziness has been the uh, the uh, the reason why humanity has evolved from being primitive. We we just didn't want to put the effort, so we came up with things to. <laughs> we, we, we created stuff to uh, avoid putting the effort where we didn't want to put it in.
0: Well, I, I relate with a lot of it, Christina, and being a perfectionist, you're right. It's, it's kind of sexy. It's like saying, you know, you're really busy. It comes off as as great. (laughs) And yet at the end of the day, I'm looking at, yeah, but how do I feel? Am I satisfied? Am I fulfilled? Am I, am I at peace? And that's really at my, time of life right now, I find myself, I want I want peace. I've been lacking peace and I'm tired. I'm, t- I'm emotionally tired of not having it. And yet I do like the good side, like you said, of perfectionism. Um, my friend, Tom Ziegler talks about having the highest standards and the deepest grace. I've always missed the grace part, you know, for myself. And yet I want the highest standards. I want to go after, I want to shoot for the stars in essence. I'm bored. Otherwise I'm not inspired. If I'm going to get out of bed and go, Oh, let's just make a baby step today. Just doesn't inspire me, which, you know, again, sounds kind of sexy, but then you never live up to it. And so I never live up to my own expectations. I guess I've found myself playing with that. Okay. Be be, you know, aim high, but man, if my expectations are so high, I'm never going to meet them. I've got to make peace Mm. with that somehow. Yeah.
1: You know, it's, um, it's it's the tendency that we have to to um t- to look at things in absolute terms so um very often it's it's either being perfectionist and overworking yourself or or being completely lazy there is like as if we don't see the middle ground now a lot of the times i i think the problem that we as a society have is that we think that the nature of humans is lazy and stupid
0: hmm.
1: but that's not the case that's not the case. And, and the problem is not that we're lazy. The problem is that we are overworked and exhausted. And that's why we constantly feel that we need a, a break. Now, have you been to a holiday, you go for a beautiful uh, you know, beach holiday because you've overworked, you come there, you lie down on this paradise island, you get fed and, and, and taken care of. I do not know about everybody else. In three days, I need to start moving. I need to start doing things. I remember when I delivered my second child I couldn't wait for Monday to come because I wanted to go back to work I was excited humans are not lazy they're overworked and exhausted we are not stupid we are wounded
0: it reminds me of kind of the, the idea of being overfed but undernourished and I hear yeah. you saying that and I got to say tell you Christine the first time this is this is years ago 7 years ago I went, my wife finally got me to go to one of the all inclusive resorts down in Mexico, which I never wanted to do. I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that, but we did. And we went out and we sat down and you don't have to do anything. You don't cook, you don't do a thing. And at two hours in, Christina, I said, I'm, I'm, what am I going to do? I've done, I've done all the nothing I know how to do. That was at two. I made it two hours now. I've learned. I've learned. I, I really have. And now I enjoy it. Now I know how to make use of that time because I have, in a sense, like what you're talking about being lazy, I've had to learn to be lazy. Uh, yeah. in that sense, as far as not having to do productivity. And of course, what I find is when I don't do that, when I get back to productivity, I'm so much better. So back to your overworked and exhausted. And it feels like, yeah, we're just eking out the crumbs instead of coming back to fill ourselves so we can come and do the yeah. big work and and does that I haven't thought about that being a part of perfectionism. Is are we are we constantly going, going, going and we're never full. So we're never really getting our best out.
1: So you know it's funny how five minutes into our conversation we are now talking about what what are the benefits of being lazy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's, that's a good way to go. I like it. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it. But, It'll be a unique show.
1: But yeah, yeah, that's 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 exactly I'm I'm coming back to another thought, which which I just shared a, a little earlier. We very often just run away. We keep ourselves busy. You know, sometimes it's so hard to understand what is success success. Well, we all know that hard work. Well, I'm just going to say that we all know that hard work is not bringing success. But that's true. It's something else like you have to you have to work for success. But it doesn't mean that you have to work 24 seven. Yeah, very often. I, I know I'm misapplying Pareto principles, but very often it's a little a little uh, fraction of what you're doing that actually makes the success. Everything else is just keeping keeping it busy because success is a little bit harder to understand. Like I understand how to work hard. I understand how to let's say uh Get a degree in a university, but I don't understand what it means to be successful that so rather than looking into the essence What does it mean for you? We just keep ourselves busy because this is something that makes you feel good at least I'm doing something at least I'm at least I'm working myself to death That means that I will deserve success So because we don't understand the essence of a phenomena we keep ourselves busy with a with a uh, you know with a um, movements (laughs) with the dance, uh, so that at least I feel good.
0: It reminds me of just, yeah, the results thing, like having an employee who puts in, you know, they put in their eight hours. Yeah. But did you get anything done? I used to have that with my kids. Like, you know, their chores vacuum the floor. Okay. I vacuumed it. Yeah. You just ran the thing over it in five (laughs) minutes. It doesn't mean the point was to actually clean it. There was a result we were looking for and you're right with that. And I've struggled with this in recent years, Christina, as I've realized that we still have the mentality, like I got to work eight hours. I, I, I own my own business. This is my gig. Yeah. And if I do this and I spend right now, if we spend two or three hours together and do this, man, that's a good day's work. I can go, I don't have to keep going. And I thought about, Richard Branson, I read about him yeah. years ago and he talked about, you know what, here's my routine, whatever. He says, I actually work about 20 minutes a day, but during those 20 minutes, I make huge decisions mm-hmm. that are really smart. And I thought about that and thought, do I want to be Richard Branson, work 20 hours a day, make really smart impacting decisions or do I want to go over here and treat myself like a, a low level employee and put in my eight hours and think that I accomplished something. And I have to look at that right now. And, and I'll realize, you know, that was just a $10,000 decision I made, or that's going to result in that next month. And uh, you know, I, I don't have to keep working all day, but it's, really? yeah, you're right. It's still such a cultural thing. And I get myself and treat my, I'm thinking about it now, treating myself like an employee instead of a smart it's, business owner,
1: you know, because it's easy.
0: Fire. And uh,
1: by the way, uh, Richard Branson is not saying it, just, just saying that. I've, I've been on his island like three times, and I've seen him, I've witnessed him. He is actually spending time with his loved ones, with his family, with uh, guests on the island. He does sports. It's true. That's, that's the reality. And uh, I, I've been in business for 20 years, and I know in business it's not the, I'm sorry to use that language, but it's not as hours that, mal, uh, that count. It's your uh, ability to, to, to take risks in essence.
0: Well, I, again, the focus on perfectionism, I wrote a bunch of notes out of your book and it brought me to thinking also, and you talk about even um, you talk about imposter syndrome and you actually put a number to, it. you said 80, 82% of, of us suffer from imposter syndrome. And that's something we'll go back to what you said of, Uh, you know, of, of kind of harnessing that dragon, you know, leveraging that dragon. Cause I've looked at it and I don't know that I'll ever not feel like an imposter to some degree. I mean, I've done, (laughs) you know, this may be, I don't know the number now this I'm probably coming up on 250 of these Mm. discussions, in-depth discussions with people and I can sit down, and when I sit down, I actually at this point I'm not nervous anymore. I'm at peace. I know I'm going to do a good job, and yet prior to that, I still kind of run on some nervous energy. And you know, in, mm-hmm. the, in the days prior of that imposter syndrome, and I hadn't put it together until reading your book that the perf- does it seems like being a perfectionist is going to add into that because again, you never have done enough. You never mm-hmm. live it up to your expectations, so you're always going to feel. Like an impostor, I had not put that those two together, mm-hmm. what do you think
1: I think um you know I think that it's not the problem that we feel like imposters. The problem is that um, that we actually let that um, let that corrode our self- esteem or our self-worth because uh, you know my my teacher of physics when I was a kid, he said it so beautifully. He said that knowledge is like an island in the ocean of ignorance. The bigger the island, the longer the coastline the more you are in touch with what you do not know. So the more you know, the bigger your island, the more you realize that you really do not know anything. And it's it's normal to, understand, to to realize that, you know, there's so much more I could do. There's so much more maybe I could achieve, or there are people who are better than me. The question is, does that make you feel small? Does that make you uh, question, what am I doing uh, in this position? Like, I, you know... It happens so that I'm a co-founder of one of the most impressive stages in our industry, personal growth and transformation. So the first time when I went to on stage, uh, I was sharing it with people who were way more accomplished than myself. Yeah. And and it's not, you know, it's okay that I might wonder who am I to do that. But but you know, when you go on stage with that question, do I even have the right to be here between these people? That's when imposter syndrome becomes a problem. Hmm. Just the realization that there is so much more you could do and so much more you could learn and you can become so much better is not a problem. The problem is when you start questioning, but do I have the right to do what I'm doing because I don't know enough?
0: Yeah. You, you just mentioned knowledge, Christina, and talked about that, a bigger island of knowledge. And also, and it's actually, I think, chapter three or part three of your book, you talk about transformation. So personal, yeah. what actually causes transform, transformation and you take knowledge to task and you actually have pulled the quote out. Knowledge doesn't change anything in and of yeah. itself. And you use it. And I hadn't thought about this. We always talk about take, you know, taking action, but you said you've got to experience it. And I like how you said just to experience alone without knowledge doesn't help as much either. We've got to put the two yeah. together. So we've got to take that knowledge. Like this. Somebody's going to hear this show today. We're talking about perfectionism. We're going to talk about authenticity in a minute. And they're going to hear it and they're going to gain knowledge. They're going to gain some new insight. They're going to have something that's a paradigm shift. That's great. And you're saying that's knowledge. You just made your island of knowledge Mm -hmm. bigger. Great. You got more coastline. You got more to work with if you work with it. But if you don't and just go on to the next knowledge, at some point you end up with the largest continent ever of knowledge. (laughs) You've not done anything. Fair?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah i i'm a little bit academic i mean that's one of my sides i really enjoy just sitting with books in the library and if i could just do that i would do that uh but um you know if we take one of the uh one of the examples that we were talking about for example the hard work and success mm-hmm. You might you might realize cognitively that yes, success doesn't depend on the hours that you put into this, but on something on a combination of different things. For example, it's it's this um, this ability to take risks, believe in yourself and go through with it. And then, you know, you, you get your what, for example, you might know it cognitively, but it's not going to change anything because your belief system is still not buying into it. Your belief system still is based on the idea that for you to succeed, you need to put the hours in, the ass hours, as I call them. And if you don't, then your success either is phony, not real, not sustainable, or you're an imposter. It all comes from our belief system. We see ourselves as an imposter or, um, you know, as, as our success is not real or not lasting or not big enough because we haven't put enough work. Now I can tell you that this is a really silly idea that probably is ruining your life, but it's not going to change anything. It will increase your island of knowledge. On the other hand, you might experience success which you can't explain, but you kind of know that you deserved it. You did something right, but you never you never sat down and had a moment of introspection and asked yourself what worked out. So you consider it a fluke of luck or whatever. That's the experience without the framework of the knowledge. And it also is not going to change your uh, life because you're not going to be able to replicate it. Now, if you if you have experienced that fluke success and you sit down and you, and, and you remember that island of knowledge and you remember that actually, yes, success doesn't come from us hours. It comes from some unique combination of you doing what you love, you having taken the risk, believing in yourself and persisting through everything. And that's why I'm having my success now. Now the knowledge and the experience, you know, they they bind together and they change your worldview. You, you suddenly your belief system changes. You suddenly start noticing other things. Examples of how how you need something else for that same success that we were talking about.
0: Well, you so you make me think of the ten thousand hours concept. So Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, ten thousand hours. I I. I really appreciate the message that he gave in there and I've used it and, and it's not fair to him. I'm not, I'm not negating anything that he said, but if we look at just the, I feel like we take it out of context. I mean, he he has a whole book and it talks about the the whole context of it. And it also includes people's propensity towards what they were putting their 10,000 hours into and a lot of other things. And I have seen massive success. I've experienced it in my life. I've seen it from other people who did not have remotely close to 10,000 hours, uh, in, in as you talked about
1: you know but but yeah. but that Malcolm gladwell's work is actually based on a research, and if you take the source research the the yeah. actual academics who did the research, they will say that this is misapplied explanation of this uh, of this uh, concept. Now we like the ten thousand hours because we understand it we are trained, we are used to selling our time for money, our time for for results, and that's what we get. It's easy. I, I mean, I've been a good girl all my life. I understand. Like if i if I want to try harder, I'll just put more hours into it.
0: Right. Right. In but, this, but the difference wait.
1: between, between 10,000 hours, you will need to be professional, but there's a difference between professional and genius. Yeah. And that is a leap of faith. Because if you're professionally trained artist you may become like really good at creating handicrafts. Now the works of genius of the masters. Yes, they have the technique in it, but they also have a strike of genius, which is inexplicable.
0: That, the strike of genius, that's, I want to key in on there, back to your discussion on strengths, you know, and weaknesses, but that generally, especially vocationally or athletics or whatever, that focusing on our strengths is what's going to, Benefit us most. I mean, I, I'm doing the math here. You know, if I've done 250 of these discussions with people and each of them were three hours, which were, they weren't all that long, but even if they were, that's 750 hours. I'm really shy of 10,000 hours. And yet uh, apparently (laughs) I have found a place that meets my own, you know, area of genius or brilliance or whatever that having conversations. And I do it around topics that I know we're not sitting here talking about finances because I couldn't, or even current events or politics. I would be a really short show because I don't know that much about those, but I'm here in an area that I have. And maybe that's fair. I put my time, I have probably put my 10,000 hours plus into personal development. Uh, self-improvement, self-help and whatnot. Now we get to talk about it, but still, yeah, it belies that just, as you said, asses and seats uh, aspect that we get caught up in. And I'm still surprised, yeah, that as a culture, when I mean, we have built the workplace around that, when it doesn't, it doesn't always equate to results, it's just time, yeah?
1: And, you know, if we like to misapply different researches and concepts, there's a research that says, you know, the, the concept of flow, for example, right? They say that uh, if you are in flow, you can create five times as much as if when you are working out of flow. So if you're doing something, what you love, you're much more likely to be in flow because you're doing something, what you love, what you're good at, what has meaning for you. And then those seven, uh, 150 hours multiply them by five because you've been doing it in your genius zone.
0: Yeah. You talk about that flow in regard, or not in regards to, well, yeah, almost versus the hustle, hustle culture, which, you know, we've got so many people out there and we've got great people out there who are promoting hustle and and we get the idea, you know, it is, you know, come on, buckle down, have some discipline or whatnot. But I don't think anybody wants to work a, you know, 20 hour day. I don't, uh, I want to have, I want to be in flow. I mean, that's, I had Stephen Kotler on the show as well. And that concept is dear to me. And yet, reading your book, what I came out with, yeah the hustle, the hustle aspect makes us feel more in control. Mm-hmm. And I, I started thinking about that in regards to flow. And I hadn't thought about it till till again reading your book, Christina, and thought in flow, I don't feel as in control. I feel a little bit of letting go. Uh, even, I mean, flow for me is a great mountain bike, uh, trail now out in the, out in the remote area. And I'm just going, I'm usually listening to some great music and I'm just kind of lost, uh, in it, lost in it, but in the flow, my body knows what to do. And it's just it's such a great place, but not the control. And I, again, I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't considered that not the control of the, the hustle, just do more, mm-hmm. you know, sit at your desk or whatever your job and just do more. And you feel more in control doesn't mean, again, you're getting the results, I get much more results internally. And, and I think externally when I am in flow, this is a, honestly, this is a place of flow for me at this point is a sit mm-hmm. down. I've done, I've, I've looked at your message. I've got the concept and now you and I just get to talk. There's nobody else. Uh, tens of thousands of people are going to listen to it, but right now it's just you and me and there's nothing, and there's few things that I enjoy better. And do I feel inc- I can't control it. I can't control what you're going to say. You know, I mean, I may, I may have some ideas, I want directions, topics I want to go, but I can't control it. So I hadn't put that together. That's, I, I think that that's a it's part because, of your book, hustle and control.
1: Because we, you know, we try to reconcile two opposites. And by the way, uh, as a side note, if you think that you're in control when you're hustling, that's also an illusion. <laughs>
0: it's terrible that way, it, but it, but it feels that way. I I can I can revert back to that when I start getting insecure. I'll just go to just work, just go and take care of, just do something.
1: Escape from your problems, right? Keep yourself busy so that you don't have to think about the essence of it. It feels
0: like control, even if it's not. Okay. Like
1: Let's take business as an example. Business is a creative process. Usually the best ideas we get where? In the toilet, in the shower, while biking on the mountain bike. Right. When we are, when we are free. Now, business is a creative process. You cannot run business out of a hamster's wheel. You can maintain status quo out of a hamster's wheel. If you want creativity, creativity requires space. And uh, and that's a, that's a scary thing. Now we are in in this world we understand tangible things, logical things. That's why it's so hard to explain intuition. It's the opposite. You cannot explain intuition with logic. If it is the opposite of logic, you cannot explain letting go, trusting a leap of faith with hustling, because they are completely opposite. Hustling is resistance. If you don't have resistance, you don't hustle. Hustle is only by definition a hustle when you have resistance. Letting go is when you don't resist. So you can't try harder to let go. Letting go is one step into the unknown.
0: Explain your concept of hustle in regards to surfing, I got the I got the analysis right away, but I, I had never heard that. So uh, unpack that for the audience real quick. Surfing.
1: So basically, the hustle, as I said, it's uh, it's based in the concept of resistance. You have to feel resistance to feel that you have worked hard. Analogy would be you go to the gym. You put the weights on the machines, and when you come out, your muscles hurt, and you realize that you've, you've done a good workout, right? So right. that's why hustle, if you, if you don't have that hard work, that sweat, blood, sacrifices, you don't feel you're hustling enough. And now, if your belief system is based in the idea that success requires that, you're going to either create subconsciously create the resistance or sabotage your own success because it's unbelievable. Because that's what your belief system is, and beliefs they work in a way that they have to reinforce themselves. So whatever you believe in, you're going to be the living, breathing proof of your belief, because that's just the nature of beliefs. Now, uh, surfing is the opposite of that. Well, uh, you know, if 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 we if we go back to the to the um, sorry to the gym because I, I I didn't finish. Like if if you if you feel that your muscles don't hurt, the next session you will add extra weights. Mm-hmm. Because that equates to you to good workout and the result. The same with hustle culture. Because it's based in the concept of resistance. If you don't feel resistance, you're going to create it. We have come to the point where society is coming up with ridiculous ideas of uh, proactive procrastination. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you push something to the end because under stress you function better. But I want to uh, actually, uh, if if you guys don't know, that research about you know the uh, the stress making you more productive was conducted in the beginning of the 20th century on mice, mm. not on humans yeah. <laughs> in work environments. Yeah. So so it's it's a very questionable path, very questionable path. In addition to that, it's not very enjoyable. Now, as I said. Uh, Any creative process requires some kind of vacuum, some kind of stroke of genius, something where you can't control, where you let go, where you have to trust, where you have to do the leap of faith. So analogy that works for me is surfing. It's like surfers. They're sitting, uh, like I I don't surf, but I've seen surfers in the sea. They are these little dots somewhere far in the ocean. And then when the wave comes, what they have to do is they have to jump on that wave, ride the wave. And once the wave is there, they're going to ride to the shore quickly. And probably enjoying it themselves. So that's for me, that is the the other regime, which is very different from hustling, which is the one which creates flow, which creates creativity, which actually gives you some confidence to take risks and to challenge yourself. And very often, because it's inexplicable and we don't understand how it works, we understand how the waves work. So if you're a surfer, probably if you wait long enough, you'll get the wave. But we don't understand it in our real life. And sometimes we think, oh, I have deadlines. I don't have time to wait for inspiration. And so we we slide into hustling because this is something which is under our control. I can put more hours into my efforts. I cannot control that the wave is coming. Now, if you – and I'm not saying that I have to do only surfing – um I think both regimes are necessary. As I said, I don't believe in absolutes. Both are necessary. But yeah. if your default is hustling and you don't remember when was the last time that you were surfing, I bet you're going in the wrong direction in your life.
0: Well, I appreciate you've said that multiple times not believing in absolutes and that's that's a whole topic in and of itself. I mean, that's been my I I've I found myself lately going, "Man, you know, I 20 years ago, I was so certain about so much. And today I'm not certain about much uh, of anything. And, you know, and also looking at resistance, that's a great analogy, what you use in the, in the workout room. I and mean, that was me as a pro athlete. Uh, there's, I mean, you endure, it doesn't matter what happens. You endure, you never quit. You keep going. There's no place for emotions. There's no limits, no excuses, whatever. Well, that's great to put you on the podium at the end of the race but then to take If you're that, lucky. If you're lucky, right, right, with some luck. <laughs> so, But it works there, just like in the weight room, putting more weights on, you know, and tear it down. Okay, that works there. But if we take that out and put it into work. And for me also, putting that into relationships, It doesn't Mm -hmm. work. My wife does not want a guy who's just bent on endure, whatever, no limits, no excuses, uh, whatever that doesn't, that's not a relational tactic. And so you are back of back to your thing of it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a certain thing. It's not a black and white. It's a fluid thing. And and, and even coming back to resistance, I have not thought of that word, Christina, that you're right. We look at resist, there's gotta be resistance and yet back to flow and creativity that comes that does not come as a result of resistance for me. That comes as a result of, I guess, joy and freedom and heck back to laziness to some degree. I mean, I have some of my best thoughts sitting on the beach with a journal and having time to think. And yet that's not what we do over here in the yeah. hustle culture. It's, it's totally counterintuitive, which again is, is so much of what your book is, is about, is turning some of these cultural perspectives on their heads. And I love that you have had the view of your own experience and the experience of so many people, literally, you know, on stage in books, whatever, and you've culminated it so well in the book.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying this. Yeah. Uh,
0: it's why well, well, you're here.
1: I've, I've done, uh, I've done this path for a long time myself. So it's pain speaking.
0: Yeah. You, you talk about at the beginning and I thought we would start here, but we just organically went a different way but authenticity. Mm-hmm. So that's one that I, I do grapple with still, Christina, uh, honestly. And you talk about, you know, can anyone be 95% honest and authentic and, you know, 5%, you know, fake or performing and, and then, you know, call themselves authentic. You're saying no. And you talk about your own, you said, as far as the book, even, and, and I appreciate your perspective of you. So you went with a traditional publisher, as opposed to just doing your own thing, you self-publish, you get to do whatever you want, write it however you want, craft it. I like you went with a big, one of the big publishers and you do not have that freedom when you go with them. There's other benefits as well, but you said it was so hard because it, it backed up against, you said my obstinate need for pure self-expression. Okay. I want you to hit on that. And my listeners know I, I've, I've come to this in recent times. It's kind of a, a theme that keeps coming up that I do struggle with because I I mean, I, I have lived a life that has a lot of inauthenticity in it. Like you, I was mm-hmm. doing things to perform uh, to, to people, please to do whatever to manipulate even and persuade whatever and not really being true to myself. And that brought me to a place of burnout. And so I want to be I'm striving to be more authentic and yet being authentic. I don't feel, and I want you to give me your perspective doesn't necessarily mean that I just go out and be just raw and unfiltered because if I do, I'll be a jerk and I won't be disrespectful. Okay. Yeah, I know. So, but that's it. And I think culturally we struggle with this. I see people that with authenticity and I think that they're, they're using it out of context too. So give your perspective. on that. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a, you,
1: you, you touched upon so many interesting things. That's so a
0: big point. So, well, let's play with it.
1: Yeah I'd like I don't have to t- pick just one of them I uh, you, you of course you know but for for people who maybe didn't uh, didn't quite get it I started writing my book to be self published but I ended up uh, working with a big publisher yeah. so it has the combination of both and it it was a, a dance uh, between convention and my uh, you know, obstinate needs for self-expression. Now, uh, when it comes to authenticity, I believe that authenticity is the result of your relationship with yourself. And now I'll have to make a step back and, and give a, an explanation. So any relationship, and if I'm talking about regular relationships, your relationship with your lover, with your child, with your parent, with your sibling, any relationship, if we take it, if, if it's an important relationship for us, we usually, for that relationship to thrive, we need a few ingredients. We need to be present, committed, probably compassionate. These things are necessary for a relationship to thrive. Now, if we take a relationship for granted, if we are too busy for it, if we know that this person is always there for us, it's going to suffer. Even if you're not aware of that, but the relationship is going to probably deteriorate. That's why, unfortunately, some long-term relationships end because we get to the point where we take them for granted. We are not willing to put any any attention into them anymore. Hmm. And by that analogy, we have one very important relationship that most of us take for granted and are not committed to. It's relationship with the self. Yeah. We take it for granted. We don't commit to it. And moreover, we are ashamed to prioritize it because we think our society often... Beliefs buys into that. We buy into the society's uh, ideas that we think that it is selfish. It is self-obsessed and We very often misunderstand that relationship with the self. We don't know what a healthy self-love is And I use love in that context as the healthy relationship So what happens is that our relationship with self is very often deteriorated and very often unhealthy even toxic uh, You know taking us down Think of the most, and I don't like this word toxic, but just for the sake of this example, think of the most toxic relationship in your life that you can't cut off for whatever reason, maybe it's your family member, and how it influences you. Very often that relationship, unfortunately, is not your, I do not know, brother-in-law or auntie, but yourself. We're just not aware of that. So uh, for me, authenticity is a symptom of a healthy relationship with yourself. Because authenticity requires a few ingredients. It requires you to know who you are, to be quite clear about who you are, because how can you love an idea? True love, true healthy relationship, true love is when you are capable of loving the real person. Mm -hmm. And we know the difference. When we fall in love with someone, very often we fall in love with an idea. After we know a person for a while, we start seeing them for a real person. So... Authenticity requires you to be real with yourself, to know who you are, to accept yourself with your imperfections, and to still love yourself, not despite everything, but through everything.
0: Okay. We'll go to that because you do get into the self and I, I appreciate that's a constant message that I need to hear. And I think we all need to hear when we look at, yeah, being all, everything feels external, you know, to be authentic is what you're putting out here and not what you're looking at with yourself. And as you talk about, we often with relationships, look at an idea of a person. One of my uh, philosophers I I really appreciate is Anthony DeMello. And he talks about that, that love and relationship. Do we really love somebody or we love the idea we have about them? And I understood that, but I still didn't turn it on myself that well. Do I have, am I just trying to live up to an idea of myself? I mean, again, I do want an ideal. I do want to be improving and bettering, but am I okay with me? Today, am I authentic with who I am? And you talk about that, how we tend to discount our feelings in that regard. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't feel that way. But you're saying, yeah, yeah, but you do. You do. (laughs) And I keep coming back to that. It just is. If it it is, it just is. So I do feel that way. Don't judge it. I do. Get that on the table. That's authenticity. Yes? That's a piece.
1: Authenticity definitely requires uh, you to be fully honest with yourself. Yeah. And that's that's a very tricky thing, because we are not often aware of how much we live in a delusion, because that's the essence of delusion. Delusion is when you're not aware that you're living not in in the real picture of reality. Uh, and, uh, you know, when when you were talking about that, that idea, who do I really love? Do I love the picture of the best version of myself? That means I have to exercise properly, you know, I have to eat properly, I have to be very patient and nice to all the people. I have to only love people. In fact, I can't get angry. And I have to do everything perfectly. And then that's when I'm ready to love myself. Now, the biggest biggest, uh, trap is that you need your own self-love the most exactly in those moments when you can't give it to yourself. When you're feeling good, it's easy to love yourself. When you're listening to this podcast, it's easy to love yourself because you're doing something good. You're being a good boy, a good girl. Now, try loving yourself. When you woke up in the morning, you were in the horrible mood. You actually skipped your gym. And rather than, you know, what we do is that we we start beating ourselves up. Because we are afraid that if I love myself in that moment, I'm going to slide into being lazy and complacent. Again, we come back to that integral belief that our society has is that people are lazy and stupid. We are not. We are afraid. We are afraid to pity and to hug ourselves in the moment when we need our own love and compassion, because we are worried that if we give ourselves love and compassion in the moment when I'm not my best self, I will not be inspired to become a better self. Hmm. It's, you know, an analogy is when you cut your hand, you stab the wound rather than dressing and healing it. You the 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 fact that you woke up in a bad mood, you didn't go to work or you didn't do your workout, and you were actually not your best self, comes from for a reason. There is a reason why you're feeling this way. And rather than rather than making it worse on yourself, maybe what you need in that moment is your self-love, where you're willing to sit with yourself and ask yourself, what's going on? Why am I feeling this way? Why am I doing this? A very simple analogy: If you have a small child and a small child throws a tantrum you can yell at the child and say behave yourself sit in that corner and you're grounded or if you're actually a loving parent you'll sit down and you ask what's going on with you yeah can you tell me what's going on
0: so to do that with ourselves, it it brings me back christina to the discussion on success you know what what is that and you talk about that so much in the book, and you talk about specifically, you say success is not a destination. It's a pithy thing to say. We probably all heard that. And yet it continues to chew on me. I mean, that is what I have been focused on is the achievement, the goal, the, the destination. I mean, that that is it out here. And yet realizing, and and I said this recently because it occurred to me, I read somewhere about Mount Everest and that it's so busy right now during the on season, especially. I mean, it's literally, it's it's like a, you know, it's like a mall. I mean, it's lined up with people and you've got to deal with all all the folks that are on their way up there. And when you get to the top, you have something like 12 minutes or something that you can be there. And then you got to get out of the way for the next person. I think, man, that is a dramatic, dramatic amount of time and effort to be able to go and get to the top of Mount Everest for that much time. If your goal was to get up there and look around and see the view, that's pretty disappointing. If you didn't, mm-hmm. if you didn't enjoy the the journey up there, it's pretty disappointing. It's gotten me back to think, not, not back to, it's got me for the first time looking at man. if we don't enjoy the journey, mm. we're missing it because we may never even get to the destination. So back to you talking about the authentic self. If I can't, be okay with myself i'm never going to back to perfection i'm never going to achieve it i mean if i'm mm. not okay with myself now i'm probably not ever going am i ever going to what would it be that's a good question i've never thought about what would i have to achieve what would i have to be to be okay with myself if i'm not right now <laughs> what, would you, what would you put down
1: so uh the, the f- first a side remark you know one of the most brilliant quotes is unfortunately anonymous uh happy are those people who are on a detour and can still enjoy the scenery and we have to realize that our whole that's life great. is one long detour. I Unfortunately, I don't know who said this brilliant thing, but now coming back to Mount Everest, you know, if your goal was to get to Mount Everest and enjoy the scenery, that would be a good thing. Unfortunately, because you would at least enjoy the scenery for 12 minutes. Who says yeah. it's not enough. Unfortunately, our goal to reach that top is to feel better about ourselves. Hmm. And that's, that's the tricky thing. You will feel better about yourself for a short moment that I have been there, but we very often tie our success to the idea of our lovability. If I become the best selling author, people are going to love me. And then, and then maybe I'll be convinced that I can love myself.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, the problem is that nothing changes in the way the world sees you once you reach your success. Because the world will take you like, the world will treat you exactly how you treat yourself. So if you're going for success while hating yourself, thinking that you are not worthy, you don't deserve, and you reach success, you come with that same energy. Yes, you'll pat yourself on the back saying you you made it to Mount Everest. But in essence, the world will treat you exactly the same way. And you will not feel any better. As one of our authors says, she says, the problem is that, you know, once you're on top of that Mount Olympus, before, at least you had this idea that was pulling you forward. The idea of when I'm there, that's when I feel happy. But once you are there, you're losing this last hope. And then you're left alone with yourself.
0: It, you're bringing me back to thinking about cycling, which is one of the most, uh, out, of, out of all athletics, it's one of the most elitist sports out there Um, and, and it's known as that. And really, I mean, we used to talk about it back then and it's still true today. You're only as good as your last result. So if you won last weekend, you're the guy, you're it. If you lost if the next weekend you, you, you're terrible, you're off. I mean, you're, you're, you're not talked about anymore. I mean, you're only as, as good as, that. and yeah, how hard is that? It, bringing back to the book that, my book now we're we're just about ready to start the real launch of uh of of my book the one over my shoulder here bomb two copies so i think we're past that already but you know but that what does it what does it mean for me what does it mean to me am i okay anyways and i had to look at that and kind of like what you said you know how, how do i How do I judge myself? Is it only on those achievements? I mean, but there is some part of that, Christina, that that's still a struggle. It's still a tension because we do look at what I mean, I find that there's things that I do and I want accolades out there. Sure. Everybody wants affirmation and success out there, but there's also some things that I've been looking at recently that I do. And I'm almost trying to win my own approval. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. what to do with that. I mean, there are things that we want to do. So we feel proud and feel good about ourselves. How do you grapple with that there too?
1: I think Go. I think I wouldn't probably uh, obsess about that too much because very often we think that we are doing it for our own approval but the question is even that book why did you write it? Like in my case of course I'd liked it to be a success but I didn't write it because I wanted it to be a success. I wanted I wrote it because I'm a writer I had a message and my message is exactly like a baby. Once you're pregnant with a baby when the time comes the baby has to come out.
0: Yeah. Fair.
1: You you can't hold it in. That was my reason. Now, I'll I'll, uh, give you a little uh, illustration because illustrations are easier to to understand. Uh, A few years ago, there was a meme on Internet with a a digger who was going two diggers who were going for diamonds and there were two tunnels. And one of the diggers was almost at the diamonds, but he gave up and turned back and the other one kept digging. And from the it, it was a cross section. So from the cross section, it was so obvious you have to keep digging. You have to keep digging when you are in that deep, dark tunnel. You think that all you have to do is keep digging. But when you are there, when it's not a cross-section, when you don't see that there are diamonds there, sometimes, if you're a real human being, sometimes you will start doubting yourself. You will ask, am I being persistent and gritty? Or am I being a pig-headed idiot? And what I need is a step back to see the door next to the one which I'm trying to bang, uh, you know, open. It's, you know, all those cliches are wonderful when you hear them out of context. But when you are in your life, you do not know if you need more persistence or if you need to take a step back and change your course. Now, what, what is going to I have been in deep, dark tunnels in my life. I mean, I'm 45. Of course, I have. I've been uh, in few businesses and I know I've, I've come to a conclusion. The only thing that will make me be persistent is not the diamonds at the end of that tunnel. But if I enjoy the digging, yeah. if the, if I find meaning in the digging, and it's and, and, and that's how life is, unfortunately, I, you know, I've worked for years on my Instagram and I was doing well. And then suddenly the algorithm, uh, you know, changed and I was feeling really, really frustrated. And then, you know, the tendency is to try to revive your Instagram, raise the numbers and all that. Because these are the measurable things which we equate to success, but am I doing it for that? Or am I doing it because I have messages I want to share with the world and I care that people whom I do not know maybe resonate, maybe hear, maybe they make them think. What, why am I in what I'm, uh, I'm doing? Am I there to, to, to reach that the top? Or because the process itself, the digging itself gives me the meaning. The only way to win the race is when digging gives you the meaning because willpower is unsustainable it's a, yeah. an exhaustible resource re- resource
0: well you saying that well i'm a, a big i'm a friend and a fan of dr benjamin hardy who has willpower doesn't work and uh that's re- I, it's the first time i had it on the show was because of that and we how yeah, we think again it's that cultural perspective that we just grit our teeth and we keep going and yet willpower is finite and so are we in, in this. And even that in looking at, I, I appreciate that, j- enjoying the digging, you know, we're digging for diamonds, but if we don't enjoy the digging, uh, I mean, another piece of this is part two in your book, Christina, that again, I feel like taking to task. I feel like you take it to task and I want to play with it just like authenticity and how we look at it. And do we really perceive it in a healthy, productive way that you talk. uh, Part two is finding your own truth. And that one is, we talk a lot. I find myself talking a lot about objective reality. Here's this, this thing happened. Okay. It's an objective. However, our perspective and my truth is generally, or always it's a story I make up about it. And so even in that, I find people struggling and I'm going to, you know, I'm one of them sometimes on going, okay, for one, I I do want to find and understand my own truth, but to also realize that it's not fact. You talk a lot about belief in the book and how we form our beliefs and how we go awry with that too. So play with that a little bit too on reconciling. Okay. We do want to find what is true for us, but then what would you say? Hold it lightly in a sense, because it doesn't mean that it's fact for all humanity. It's just your truth and being at peace with that. But that's hard to, that's hard. (laughs) It's hard to balance.
1: Well, um, yeah, the, the, there are so many ways we can approach it uh, from. But one one re- uh, replique that you made a, a while ago, I actually really uh, it stuck with me. You said, you know, the more I do that, the more I realize how, like before, I, I before I thought that I know, uh, I know how the things are supposed to be, and now I start realizing that I really don't know and I'm confused. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing yeah, yeah. right now. But for when you said that, for me, it was like. Beautiful. This is exactly the point when the growth and transformation starts happening. Because what is growth and transformation when something changes? If you're set on what you believe and what you think is truth, then you can't change. You're going to struggle and fight and feel pain. And I think when you, the moment when you come to, to a very simple realization that any single moment in life you can be wrong. Yes, it may yes. make you feel a little bit ashamed. You may blush for a moment. You may feel a little frustrated. But just the realization that any moment of time I may be wrong, it's actually also such freedom. It's yeah. so liberating. Because suddenly you realize that you don't have to get stuck to things that don't work for you, to things that haven't worked for you so far. And yes, maybe maybe you liked that version of truth. And if you find that it is not true, It Doesn't it give you some kind of chills that, oh, my God, I get to explore and discover something new and challenge myself and maybe see this world in a different way? Kids are not stuck to their understanding of the world. That's how growth happens when you are open to see how things work, actually, and not to how you think they work. Yes, it's unpleasant. I'm a perfectionist. You know, criticism is painful for me. But behind this initial stab, there's always the joy of rediscovering life and world and myself and my relationship with the world because change is beautiful. It's liberating. But yes, people find it painful because we attach our identity to our beliefs. That's that's the painful
0: part. Well, I wanted to go right there because you talk about change is beautiful. <clears throat> I would agree. And we're talking about transformation. To do that, though, it feels like we have to put our beliefs out on the table and be able to question them, to be able to have the confidence to. And as you talked about in the book, and again, it's somewhat elementary, but it's not, we don't, it's the common sense. It's not common anymore that our beliefs, just like you said, we attach them to ourselves. So this belief becomes a part of my self identity. And the minute that it does, it's dangerous. Uh, I had Andy Norman on the show. He wrote the book called mental immunity and talks about just that, the, the danger that most of our things that we say, we believe we've attached to our, own identity. And as soon as we do that, then we can't authentically look at that question and there's no ability to change. And so you talked about confirmation bias. And I, we, I think most people know that name, uh, that concept, but you know, the idea of if you believe X, Y, Z, that when you go to research about that, quote, research about that, you're going to research it in a way that confirms your bias. And I do it all the time. I mean, you know, like like writing a book and you're wanting to make a point, I go do the research to come up with a study on the mice that proves my point, right? And we can generally though, if we wanted to, I've always thought what an interesting thing it is to take that though and go as an exercise, go make a case, just pretend somebody's gonna give you a hundred grand. To go make a the greatest case you can that you can against your belief for the other side, how powerful would that be in the media? How would that change the media landscape if everybody had to do that and go make a case for the other side? Because you can, like you coming back, you said to what you talked about, how seldom there are absolutes; it's contextual and. Mm This feels like a core thing that you pull out in the book that that it, it is a, a root issue of transformation. That we say we want to transform, we say we want to change, and yet we won't let go of our beliefs. Well, then we're we're screwed.
1: Yeah, we just want to see more proof of that. It's not na- it's natural. It's human. I've changed a lot of things in my book because I uh, a very simple example. I took some of the statements for granted because I heard them from very uh, from authorities that I truly respect. And then when I tried to verify the quote or the statistics, I discovered it doesn't exist. Or, for example, that it's the, it's different. It's not what, what that authority said. I've changed a lot in my book because I'm very, uh, you know, I'm a little bit, I'm misplacing this diagnosis, but I'm a bit OCD and very, <laughs> very uh, academic. So I had to change a lot of things, and it was a little frustrating, but it also opened up uh, the doors to so many things, so many other discoveries, so many other. Uh, you you know how, how I even went onto that path? I remember I said... Uh, I, I, I was using the term spiritual bypassing in one of my um, in, in one of my presentations, and my friend started challenging me. He said, "There's no such thing. It's not uh, scientific," and I was so con I mean, it made sense. Of course, it makes sense. So I was so set on that, but he he actually challenged me. And I went and I started researching and I discovered that, yeah, spiritual bypassing is not actually a a, a scientific term. But in science, there are such things as defense mechanisms, which are amazing and wonderful. And actually, that, that criticism led me on the path to going deeper into psychology, which I truly enjoy right now. Because I was okay to, to, to say, yeah, let me, let me try to find out what's going on. Now we do attach our identity to our belief system and that's what makes it painful. I divorced from my husband four years ago and we had been together for 16 years. When that decision was made, you know, it's a decision when you make, when you suddenly come to a conclusion that maybe, maybe I made a mistake 16 years ago. Maybe it's not working right now. But we have to change it. And very often, when you have to cut something off so dramatically, you feel pain not just because that part of your life ended, but you almost feel like, did I waste that time? Yeah. You know, do I have to write it off? Is it now not part of my past? We have a really good relationship with my ex-husband, so it's it's fine. But but in that moment, there is that choice where you start lamenting about the past and saying like. How could I have done that? Or what did I do wrong? Why? How did we get to that? And and being that stuck in the past and seeing how how you know how painful it is to to separate your identity of a married woman from from you know from your past and from what you're feeling right now versus I could look into the future and and wonder how can we build a relationship a new kind of relationship with that person who has been with me all my life. Yeah. What can we discover about ourselves, about our life? What kind of new opportunities? That, that 16 years were, were not scratched out of my experience. I didn't change. I didn't change at all. I'm still the same person. The question is, can, do I see the truth? Am I willing to see the truth? Yeah. Or do I want to keep lying to myself, pretending? Just because I, I refuse to see the reality doesn't make me the same old me.
0: Christina, I feel like anchoring this. Your entire book, becoming flossom, part six in your book is about kindness, and coming back to what you said about authenticity, we think about being authentic. We think about it externally, and you said, "No, the first place to be authentic is with yourself." And you say the same thing on kindness. And I've studied kindness. I I I feel like I know about it, and yet you still turned it on its head a bit a bit for me. That you talk about what's the key of, first key of kindness in in a sense I'm paraphrasing but it's self kindness and again we, we don't see this we don't I I don't even have the thought or intent to be I'm a perfectionist I'm I'm critical with myself I want more out of myself I'm not thinking about being kind to myself and yet if that's where it starts even if that's where it starts for my kindness for others is can I be kind to myself and that is no part of my nature is to mm. be kind. But if I'm going to, as you, the title of the book, becoming flawsome, becoming awesome in my flaws would require me to be kind, to be compassionate. And we've done, we've, we had a show a long time ago on self-compassion. I think it's a uh, Christine, Dr. Christine Neff. Um, I got the idea. I'm still not practicing it well to be, can I be kind to myself? It's almost easier for me to tangibly hold on to that than compassion. Compassion is such a deep emotional aspect, but just to be kind, can I speak kindly? Can I think kindly about myself? And right now it's got to start with, can I just be aware of how unkind I Mm. tend to treat myself and speak to myself, especially my, my speaking, but that feels that feels like a pillar of what you're talking about with being able to have your flaws, understand them and still be awesome. Yes.
1: I, I definitely think that kindness is so undervalued in our society. Uh, we, we are uh, fascinated by love, but love is not as practical a skill as kindness because uh, yes. love requires some level of perfection. Kindness doesn't require perfection at all. That's the, the, the you know, you actually practice kindness when you face something which is hard to accept. That's when you tr- practice true kindness. It's easy to be kind to a fluffy little kitten. Uh, it's not so easy to be kind to, let's say, a homeless person. So much harder, right? And we all have our, uh, our weak spots, but now... Uh, there's one thought also which, which, which I come to in my book very, very late, but it's very essential, especially in your relationship with yourself. And I think it's, remember, it's, it's important to remember, your relationship with the world is the reflection of your relationship with yourself. So if you can't be kind with yourself, very likely you can't be kind with the world. That's why I say that perfectionism is not just a hard burden for you. It's a hard burden for people in your life. Perfectionists are really hard to live with. Yeah. And so very critical people, uh, you know, people who have an impossibly high bar, they're very hard to live with, not because they suffer. And, you know, if I love you, I will suffer by looking at you suffer. But they actually impose that on people in their life. So for you to sort out your relationship with yourself, in a way, is a public service. <laughs> I think if people learned to be, uh, to be at peace with themselves, it would be so easy for them to be at peace with the rest of the world.
0: I feel like that's a, that's a mic drop statement, uh, Christina. It really is. Because when I think about that, we have so many people who feel like this is a you know, cold, hard, dark, cruel world. And when I look at the people who I most revere, that I most respect, that most inspire and encourage me, they think life is beautiful they think life is beautiful and i want to give that a caveat too it's not because they're now an author on the bookshelf behind me and on the show it's generally because they have endured some tragic and some hard things and some traumas and they've come they've come through that and life is beautiful. And I think they've learned to see themselves as beautiful. So um, I just, I'm grateful for what you've done to take your experience and exposure to so many successful people, and then your own experience in your own life and bring it together in this book. It feels like an incredible curation and such a paradigm shift on so many of these important foundational pieces for our personal transformation. So thank you, Christina, it's just a joy, and it's been a gift to me. I know it will be to everybody else. Thanks for being here,
1: Kevin. Thank you so much for having me and for giving me this chance to share.
0: My honor. All right, friends, this was part one of my four-part series with Christina Mandlacchiani. and her book again is becoming flawsome. F L A W E S O M E, becoming flawsome. The key to living an imperfectly authentic life. Coming up in the next episode, we'll get into her values, what drives Christina, her values and her habits. Really interesting to hear her stories. And again, I think you will relate with so much of it and it will give you ideas and equipping for your own life. Friends, thank you for tuning into Self Helpful, where I curate the sea of new personal development materials and help you integrate wisdom into your life because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others.